Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. And I am joined today by Kian Katan Farouche, who is a professor at Stanford, as well as the CEO of a company. And we are going to be discussing deep learning, uh, upskilling, and lots of other things that I think might be interesting to the software developers listening to this show. Without further ado, Kian, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. So give folks a little background. How did you end up in the world of computer science? And then more specifically, how'd you move into deep learning? I believe in the email that I got introducing us, it said you taught or created a deep learning course at Stanford along with Andrew Ng. That's right. Yeah, I, I grew up in France. My family's from Iran. And uh, I studied engineering back there. Then I went for grad school to Stanford where I originally worked with the professor of cryptography. Uh, I moved to AI to work under Andrew Eng, and that was motivated by my passion for education and talent uh, and helping people achieve their fullest potential. And AI has, as you imagine, such a big impact on the personalization of learning and the measurement of skills. And so I worked with Andrew Eng as a student, and then he wanted to go back to teaching uh, deep learning and we launched together a series of five courses called the deep learning specialization which was extremely popular and uh, was completed by millions of people and we also started a class together at stanford so i became right. a lecturer and uh, we've been teaching the deep learning course of stanford since 2017 and that's also a fairly large class at Stanford, introducing people to neural networks and adjacent technologies. I'm sure it's getting larger by the year. All right, let me ask you one question that I think would make a good segue into discussing a little bit of what you do on the business side. Let's say I, I was a CS you know, 101 student sometime you know, in the last 10 or 20 years before deep learning was as popular as now. I work at a company and they want to go all in on you know, Gen AI or they've decided they need some competency in the world of deep learning. What are the things that I would need to learn that would be different you know, than what I learned in my traditional you know, CS education? Is it a matter of shifting you know, the language, the framework, the way of thinking? What does a CS you know, graduate bring to the table and what would they need to get more involved in working on as a sort of like a modern AI engineer, let's call it? The way I think about it is CS students are in prime position to adopt AI methods and to become actually builders of AI systems, not necessarily only consumers of AI systems. And to become a builder of AI system, you need the core foundation of computer science that they already have. You know, anything from software engineering, software architecture, some of the popular back-end frameworks, a little bit of front-end if you want to end up building a product. Where it diverges is that to understand deeply the algorithmic side of AI, you probably need a bit of linear algebra. You need a little bit of probabilities and statistics or core data science. Uh, you may also need to master a few um, deep learning frameworks, uh, such as PyTorch or TensorFlow. Nothing that is impossible to learn, and people usually pick it up fairly quickly. The work in AI differs in one fundamental way uh, in comparison to software engineering, is it is less predictable. Right. In software engineering, you know, all the methods we've built around 
you know, some of you work on Scrum, some of you work on Shape Up, on Agile, and you have your uh, daily call with the stand-up and you can predict reasonably well how a product is going to go from ideation to deployment. In AI, it is harder to estimate when the model is going to work. And so the <laughs> right. way you plan out your yeah. deployments is very different. And uh, that's something that people tend to learn on the job as they engage with an AI system. We do have a class called Structuring Machine Learning Projects that teaches how to structure machine learning projects from uh, you know, how to team collaborate, how to make decisions in the middle right. of a project, and how to maximize the output. Cool. All right, so let's transition over a little. Uh, you are an academic, but you're also in business at Workera. And the idea there is uh, a company comes to you and they say, I want to identify you know, what skills my employees have, if their competency is up to the level we need for this project, or you know, if they need to head in a new direction or you know, are missing certain key skills, then we can work with them to acquire those. Now, in the pitch, you know, it talked a little bit about how this uses cutting-edge AI. It certainly seems like a product that's valuable, but why does it need you know, AI? Like, Why can't you just create a nice test for, you know, folks, you know, to see, are you competent back end, front end, like you said, data science, and, you know, put a couple and if or statements in there as they're taking the test to personalize it, and then, you know, get a score and, and go from there. What, what do you need AI for in this situation? There are three main reasons we use AI. One is related to a personalization of learning. The second one is related to measuring people accurately. Uh, and unbiasedly. And the third one is to make sure that the learning is aligned with projects. But I'll explain mm -hmm. all of them. Um, imagine the context. We're talking, you're a large organization. You're a VP of engineering. Uh, you don't know the skills that your people have at a granular level. So you don't know how to you know, offer opportunities to people, match them to the right projects, identify mentors, help them mentor mentees, or administer a course that is relevant for the people. And there is just no way you have the time to monitor what are the best courses out there in the world and who needs what. There's no way right. you can do it. And so we need AI to help you scale and sort of give you an agent that can, on your behalf, assess the team, give them feedback, explain the goals for next year in terms of skills, and then select the content. And where the AI helps is first with the measurements. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a quick analogy, but if you don't use any AI during your measurements of skills, uh, you have a one-size-fits-all measurement. You and I are taking the same test, and I may be very proficient, you may be less proficient, doesn't matter. And so the advantage of using AI is be much more precise in the way you measure. The second thing is you can predict many skills with AI. So for instance, if I ask you uh, two times two and you say four, I don't need to ask you two plus two. I don't need to ask you two minus two. I don't need to ask you zero plus one. Maybe I'll ask you something more advanced. AI will help me optimize over an entire graph of skills and identify right. what are the five questions I can ask to get prediction across a thousand skills. And uh, that's very powerful. And then when it comes to uh, making sure that your learning is tied to project, AI helps. Again, uh, learning is fairly generic online. Like it's all on the person to figure out what to learn and there's so much content. And so AI helps you take a project, turn it into skills 
and turn those skills into safe measurements that are then connected to content online that helps you personalize the learning aspect. And so it's a huge advantage to have AI when it comes to learning. Right, right. So what skills are you seeing being really sought after in the marketplace, you know, in areas, I guess, of opportunity for folks who are listening, where if they have those skills or they're looking to upskill, this is where they should invest, you know, as folks are thinking at, you know, at large organizations are thinking about moving into the future, what are they hoping their employees have? And if they don't, what are they, you know, trying to upskill them in? Well, last year was expectedly an explosion of generative AI content. Responsible AI has become a mainstream topic in the enterprise as well. So we have a suite of measurements in responsible AI. Other domains that were called out often were working with different data modalities. So language, vision, speech, et cetera. Mm, yeah. And, you know, initially we've seen teams that are responsible for language, teams that are responsible for vision, teams that are responsible for speech, but it's becoming a little bit more blended where there is intentional upskilling cross data modalities. Mm. On top of that, I think there is a huge emphasis on data security and privacy. So there is a ton of assessments that have been used for semi-technical people to learn deeply data governance, data privacy, responsible AI. Yeah, and then data literacy. I would say, to a certain extent, the fact that AI is boosting productivity pushes leaders to help their entire workforce learn AI. While right. if you compare that to 2015, when we you know started teaching some of these classes, 2017, it was very much center of excellence driven. Is you are an engineer, you learn AI. You're not an engineer, you probably don't need to learn AI. Right. So let's say, yeah, you're at a large corporation. If you have a data science team, that's kind of a leg up. If you don't, you know, you just have engineers, you know, there, there's a bit more, like you said, things they might need to focus on. How b- tall of an order is it when this, you know, the CEO comes and says, well, we got to get Gen AI. I, I don't really know what this thing is. I'm not sure exactly when you use it, but everybody's got it. So we've got to do this. You know, what does an engineering team do at that point? They've got to learn about a vector database. They've got to learn about models and model sizes. They got to learn about uh, embedding, fine tuning, retrieval augmented generation. Oh, and they've, they've got to think about, like you said, what data do we own? Legal, quality, responsible, bias on that side, on the data side. You know, how do you think organizations should go about getting their foundation? You know, like getting their feet wet, understanding what they are and are not capable of building in-house, what they should buy or build, you know, and what's out there off the shelf, open source. And then, you know, to grow from there, to be flexible, because like you said, last year was ChatGPT. Now Gemini is multimodal, right? Like you want to make sure you're, you're keeping up with these things. So. To take it back to a simpler question, a client comes to you and says, you know, all right, we've taken your skills course, you know, we figured out what we've got, but, you know, we're really kind of green here. How do we get started in Gen AI so that we can be successful with this as we move forward as an organization? Yeah, I give you two frameworks. And the first one is a successful transformation requires a strategy, a technology, and people behind it. Uh, strategy is what you, you know, you have executives getting around the table, determining a strategy, they get input from other parts of the organization and they draft it. That's not the bottleneck, typically. The technology is all you talked about is you want to figure out your cloud strategy or infra, some of the programming frameworks that you're going to use and you want to invest in them. Usually you would buy a certain extent and you would build another set. And then you get to people, which is 
most often the bottleneck. Most transformations, including the ones we're going to see in Gen AI, are going to fail because of people. McKinsey says it's about 70% plus of them. And within people, I give you another framework. For Gen AI specifically, I tend to recommend three angles. The first angle is Gen AI for your products and services. So there are certain things you couldn't do before without Gen AI that you will be able to do now. And those fall under technical projects, products and services. And here we're talking centers of excellence. So engineers, scientists, researchers, analysts that need to get those competencies that are tied to their projects to deliver faster and deliver more successfully. The second angle is the angle of productivity, which is broad-based, is the bigger your organization, the more gains you're going to get out of 1% productivity improvement. It's Mm. crazy. Most organizations spend massive amounts of money in OPEX. If you can make people more productive and more successful and boost their career, it's a huge win in terms of retention and career progression. And so we're looking here at more semi-technical or non-technical skills that help people use AI. The third angle is security and risk mitigation. I've Mm -hmm. seen many companies shut down chat GPT internal usage. It happens all the time. What usually they realize is that people use it anyway and you cannot prevent them from using it. So instead, let's put uh, guardrails and actually reward people with an access to a certain AI tool or AI platform as a consequence of certifying in certain responsible AI data governance, data privacy area, and uh, right. and that's the third angle. And I think you hit yeah. it very well if you split your strategy between those dimensions. Right. Yes, I'm sure there was a conversation at whatever car company that was after their chatbot agreed to sell the vehicle for a dollar. <laughs> it was excellent prompt, uh, <laughs> yeah. prompt hacking on the part of the customers. Excellent prompt engineering. Good for them. So I guess one of the other things you said kind of sticks out to me that there's two different ways to think about this. How do we use Gen AI for our product and our customers? Like, is it a chatbot? Is it going to be something that is creating amazing visuals? Is it something that's going to be able to, you know, understand voice or, you know, create voice? So there's like, you know, all these different modalities and you have to say, you know, what data do we have and what can we really offer the customer? The second one, I think, you know, is interesting because like you said, is there a way in which this new technology can boost productivity pretty much anywhere? Like it's more generic. And I think the answer is kind of, well, yeah, like it can do basically the platonic ideal of enterprise search. Now you've got this assistant, it can read any doc, it can look at any code repo, it's got all the wikis. And maybe that's going to save you a lot of time, a lot of shoulder taps to those subject matter experts. And the last part, you know, I guess like one of the hard things here feels like how do you evaluate safety, privacy, legality when there isn't really a lot of regulation out there yet? Like what are the benchmarks that people should use? Well, one, it's not even about regulations. You you know, you want uh, first and foremost to understand your own system to know if it works. Like it scares engineers to deploy an AI system without (laughs) having measured it well. And so that's the first and foremost figure this out. Then we're expecting regulations to come, different flavors in different countries. There's probably going to be global stuff as well. And you need to be prepared for it. Uh, But, you know, that may take some time. Yeah. All right. So you started teaching this in 2017. Obviously, you were learning it before then. 
now you've got a company that's working on it and sounds like you're talking to tons of other companies, right, to help them out as an expert in this area. What are you most excited about for the next, you know, 12 to 18 months? Let's start there. Uh, I'm really excited about the intersection of AI and the workforce. Mm -hmm. I feel like AI as a technology is one thing and AI's impact on the workforce is something else. And we've never seen a technology that has such a profound impact on the workforce since the internet, probably. And when it comes to the workforce, we are probably in phase one of three phases. We are the phase of uncertainty. People are speculating about what jobs are going to be gone, what jobs are going to be created, what are the right. skills of the future. And there's a lot of uh, stress around it. And I hope we're, we're soon, and I'm seeing it soon, getting to phase two. And phase two is really you know, uh, figuring out how to move, how to reskill, how to upskill. Phase two is we understand that certain jobs are gone, but overall, uh, there's going to be more jobs and we have identified which areas are going to have more jobs. And now we are optimizing upskilling at, at the workforce level. And then, you know, phase three is really uh, is really where we have accelerated the workforce. So you will see progress accelerates. You know, I tend to say if, if Elon Musk in a few years needs 20,000 roboticists for some reason, because on Mars you need robots or whatever, if we reach phase, phase three, we accelerate the identification of those roboticists. We put them on the right pathway. We accelerate their learning. And mm. all of that will lead to faster progress on the world scale. Okay. Yeah. You're excited about our trip to Mars. I'm also excited for that. <laughs> and to the question how AI is going to evolve in the coming years, I think it's going to be by phases. And phase one is a data regime, is build in architecture and compute that allows you to capture as much data as possible and train on that data. But sometime in the future, we're going to exhaust all the data that's available to us. And so at that point, we'll we'll sort of hit a wall where we're going to have to search for new architecture, new optimization algorithms that will take us beyond the performance that we have at that point because data is not anymore available to us. Right. And I guess, you know, on the flip side, yeah, like what makes you nervous? What are you focused on, you know, as the downside or the, you know, the black swan? event, you know, how do you prepare yourself and your team at your company? And what do you try to do as you're guiding, you know, students who are going to be entering the workforce with some of these skills? Yeah, I mean, what, what is worrisome is, um, and you know, this metric called the half-life of skills? No. Uh, so it's a metric that the World Economic Forum reports, and it measures how long a skill is useful in your career on average. Ah, gotcha. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, 40 years ago, you may use the same skill for 10 years, 20 years without changing it. And it's the same. Uh, Now we're hitting rock bottom in terms of half-life of skills. So in digital areas like AI, it's probably around two years. Yeah. And that that probably will keep decreasing to a level where it's going to be scary how fast we'll have to learn. And learning velocities are going to be very important, uh, but both personally for people. And so what worries me is that the, the world of education is not set up for that. Like yeah. what universities are teaching today is not set up for that, what right. uh, workforces are sustaining. So at some point it's going to break, but uh, we'll need to make sure that the education system is set up properly for an age where skills are just uh, ephemeral. A lot of skills right. are perishable. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. I found this academic paper once, or I saw it on Reddit, and I 
I've always wanted to find it again. So if you know it because you study this, I would love. But it was saying software engineering is one of the more challenging jobs in that respect, in the sense that you have to reskill more often than most jobs. You have to learn new languages, new frameworks, new you know sets of technologies, whatever they may be. And I do think, I don't know if this is true everywhere, but in the area where I live right now, the people who are in demand the most are the plumbers and the carpenters and the electricians. They have rare skills. There's not a lot of young people who are learning them. They can take work that they want, charge what they want, and turn away work that they want. And I know, yeah, if robotics comes along, it may change that. But it does seem like there's almost this pendulum swing. You know, the cognitive class now has to grapple with AI is going to be able to do most of this stuff better and faster than you pretty soon. Where do you fit in? And some of the, you know, jobs that we consider blue-collar trades, I think, are increasingly lucrative or valuable because... First of all, AI is not there yet. Robotics is not there yet. OpenAI famously abandoned its you know, robotics pursuit because it was just a bit too challenging. And I, I think also it's like a job where you have to interact with people. You know, like Even if we built a robot that was pretty good, would somebody trust that to come in their house and you know, rip up their wall and fix their plumbing? Probably take a while to get used to that. For sure. I can, I can see that. Although I would say there is probably more fear than what's going to, that's my prediction, then what's right. going to happen in the cognitive roles. Because if you think about AI as something that just raises up the stack, you know, we started right. with assembly language, you know, C, C++, I mean, you go up the stack. When React JS came out, people actually, it was much easier to be a front-end engineer, if you think about it. But the fact is, there were more front-end engineering jobs after than before. Right. Right, and so you know, I, I still imagine that as natural language becomes the new top of the stack, there will still be more problem-solving, engineering, science jobs in that area. Right. Maybe they'll differ, uh, but they, there will be many, many. Right. Yeah, you just got to figure out how not to be, you know, the horse and buggy. You, you know, there'll, there'll be more opportunities. You just have to make that transition as long you as know, you quickly. learn. As long as you learn. Yeah. As long as you can keep learning. All right, we want to shout out someone who came on Stack Overflow and shared a little knowledge to help save a question from the dustbin of history, got themselves a lifeboat badge. Thanks to Pax Diablo, who came on and provided a great answer. The question is, first month of quarter, given month in Python, and I'll sort of elaborate. Given a month in numeric form, how do you find the first month of a respective quarter? And Pax Diablo has the answer for you. As always, I am Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. Find me on X at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the program, leave us a rating and a review. I'm Kian Katan Farouche, and you can find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, or at workera.ai. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Keep learning, and we will talk to you soon.